Today, my wife made paleo molasses cookies. Trying to be, you know, a little bit more healthy. The one thing I, I always struggle with, Reed, is how could molasses be in a paleo diet? It seems counterintuitive. I don't understand the paleo diet. <laughs> Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. Welcome to episode number 95 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith, joined by Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. How's it going? It's good. This is, um, well, 95 was a good year. That was when I graduated high school. So I'm not sure if that <laughs> still, if that makes me a millennial or not, but creeping up on 100. And, and I believe if we've done the math right, somewhere around the first of the year, maybe the first episode of the year uh, will be episode 100. Uh, so look out! Look out for that. There'll be some fun stuff, you know, kind of coming down the pipe for that. We're planning some cool ideas, and we might want you as the audience to participate a little bit in this. So stay tuned. Yeah, yeah, you never know. Uh, and then this is also the first time that we've been back to our normal recording habit of a Sunday night recording, each in our own city, if you will, home. Uh, I think with the the fall, we were we were very blessed to be able to go to several really fun conferences, be around a lot of really smart people. Uh, that also attributed to us capturing a lot of great interviews, which you'll continue to hear over the the, the coming weeks. Uh, but also, we recorded episodes uh, while we were there. And so this is the first time we've kind of been back on our own microphones and in front of our own computers and, and that kind of thing in some weeks. So I was kind of getting um, used to you being right there or right in front of me so we could yeah. just have that chat. But, you know, this works too. I think we've we've been able to master this from two different cities at least 90 times or so. So uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get started, we talked about all the great support we've had. I guess the original supporter was loyal and That's right. one of their new products connect is something we would encourage you to uh, be sure to check out data. Uh, no doubt you're buried in it from physicians insurance, locations, services, all that kind of stuff you think about when it comes to your website specifically. But what if you could climb above it all, manage all the connections and, and see all the limitless possibilities? Well, you could if you meet Loyal's product called Connect. That's their intelligent data management platform that's designed to strengthen your system's consumer-facing data and making it seem simpler and easier to use. So to learn a little bit more about Connect or any of their other products, uh, navigate over to loyalhealth.com forward slash demo, loyalhealth.com forward slash demo, and schedule a time to check it out for yourself and be sure to tell them that we sent you. That's right. And if you're doing that, you know, if you make a mistake in uh, typing in that URL, no worries, because we all make mistakes. That's my clumsy way of making a segue to our topic today, Reed. <laughs> that, was a, that was a nice segue. That was good. I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but that's good. Yeah, we're going to talk today about uh, building a culture of failure, which is something that we hear about a lot, don't we, in this space? Yeah, I think in recent years, you started hearing a lot about failing fast or people giving talks and speeches and those types of things around you know their career failures, if you will. They're typically these like TED Talks, right? Or you know, people that are famous for something. But yeah, I mean, you're starting to hear more and more about that. 
it's almost like there's this whole movement, a failure movement, so to speak, and about how that's so meaningful and helpful for your lives. And often when I hear that, and when I've studied and read a little bit about this, what I kind of take away from that is, yeah, we all make mistakes, and these are great opportunities to learn from it. Talk about failure specifically, that's not a comfortable space to be. Uh, again, I think we've just made the point that that's becoming a little more accepted to talk about failures, but you don't you don't really put those on your resume. They're not on your LinkedIn profile. Like, here's all the things that I didn't do well. Um, but if you think about it, you know, from a hiring and firing perspective, we've asked those questions in uh, in the interview setting for, for years, right? Like, where do you excel? You know, where, you know, where do you need help or, you know, growth opportunities or give me an example of a time that, you know, you've had those questions, right? When you've applied for jobs. That's true. And, you know, also from a marketing perspective, from a, at least from a digital mind, uh, framework, we spend a lot of time looking at A-B tests and using different ways to test and try out different things and, you know, go into the market and say at 30 days, we're going to learn and optimize from this campaign and tweak our AdWords spend or whatever. And really what that's dancing around is the fact that we're going out there, we're trying things, we're experimenting with these hypotheses. And if they succeed, that's great. And if they don't and they fail, that's a great learning opportunity. Yeah. We're going to optimize. Yeah. That's a great way of, uh, of saying that, you know, something didn't work. You know, we don't call it failure, but yeah, that's interesting. You don't think about AB testing in that way, I guess. So I think it's good for us to kind of chat a little bit about failing and how do we start to see that reflected in our in the way we do our jobs? And we could probably bring up a couple of times in the past where we've seen failure happen. Either we created it ourselves or we were part of the experiment, right, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I found a couple of articles, which is really interesting, read because I, I think that as we talk through this from a larger perspective, it almost feels like these two articles have opposing viewpoints. And in the back of my mind, I thought this whole episode could feel a little bit like a touch point, touch counterpoint episode. It could. Don't worry. We're not going to do that. But or at least or at least we're not going to force the idea of a polar opposite you know, debate. That's right. But there are, to Chris's point, a couple of articles here that... Um, you know, approach this in, in two different ways. I think it's just something that would be, be kind of fun or interesting to talk through. So before we get started, let me insert a, a pause here where we'll put in the touch point, touch counterpoint music, because I really miss that bumper. Touch point, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, Fight! Okay, let's get started. The first article is about that failure, the the failure mindset. And I I came across this article off of LinkedIn. Uh, It was a gentleman, Spencer Horn. He wrote this article. He's a high-performance team whisperer. Hmm. Did you know that was a title? I do now. (laughs) He's also a leadership savant. (laughs) Well, there you go. I bet failure is in his past. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So his article is called, Are You Failing Enough? So let's start with that, Reed. Are you failing enough? Um, Probably. Well, I don't know. How do you, how do you measure that? Like, how do you, how do you determine if you've, you know, or if you're failing enough, you know, some people, and this is what we'll get into. Some people will say, unless you're failing often, you know, you're not pushing the limits enough. You're not, you're not innovating 
Uh, you're not growing, you're not pushing the limits. Now, I would say some of this is tempered by the idea of, well, what is your job? Most of us in the marketing and communication world probably have more leeway to do that, you know, culturally or should than someone who is, you know, strictly outcome based, you know, on the clinical side of the equation, for example, you're using evidence based medicine, you know, that kind of thing. You mean if they, if doctors fail, that could potentially have life threatening results? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sure. And when we fail in a marketing campaign, it may be bad. It may be disastrous, but it's certainly not going to potentially hurt anyone. We hope. No. I mean, if you if you have a if you have a dip in your Facebook reach, I'm not sure that that's a life altering scenario. But outside of like you know that very specific use case, I mean the whole the whole concept of failing is built on this uh, idea of having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Have you ever heard that term before? No, I don't guess so. Well, I mean, a growth mindset, sure, but growth versus fixed, what does he mean? A fixed mindset is one where you want to avoid making mistakes because you feel restricted by those outcomes or you you feel restricted by what that could do for your job. Anytime something bad happens, you try to cover it up, you try to hide it, or you just don't talk about it. And that's a very natural thing that humans have. It's kind of almost animalistic, right? It's based on our animalistic brains. And it's really to kind of hide things that potentially could cause us harm or cause us punishment for the things that we do. Whereas a growth mindset is one that says, hey, look, we all make mistakes. So if you make a mistake, at least make a mistake so you can learn from it and you can grow from it and you can kind of expand your mind to think past the fact that it's a bad thing, that it's actually something that you can learn from. Well, I mean, it sounds good. What's the downside, I guess? Is there one? Of having a a kind of a, a growth mindset? Yeah. Well, we'll talk about the downside of that first, but let's talk about some of the benefits. So first of all, they say, if you have a fixed mindset, you create systems and processes that are designed to reduce risks, you know, kind of like those people over in the IT department, right? Because, you know, you want to avoid taking a risk so that you potentially be successful more times than not. But they also say by, by doing that, you create a bias against taking risks. So basically, you get into a rut, so to speak. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, again, when your job is to say no or provide guardrails, things like that, you do get in that systematic process or world, I guess. You kind of have to. And in our space, right? I mean, if you're in, I I joked about IT, right? But a lot of IT people, they're worrying about security and they're making sure that our data isn't compromised and those sorts of things. By failing for them or, or causing any kind of risk, that could potentially, you know, cause a lot of damage to the health system that you're working for. And I bet you, you can name a couple of other departments at our health system that are very outside of the doctors that are avoiding risk too, right? Sure. I would say most everyone, anybody that's process oriented. So, I mean, you have HR, you've got medical staff office, you've got, you know, certainly all the clinical roles, not just physicians, you know, anybody in an operations, uh, you know, materials, you know, pe- people that are process oriented, I mean, their idea is to, you know, mitigate risk, if you will. There's even a whole department called risk management, right? At health systems. That's their whole job is to manage risk, to prevent it from happening. Absolutely. But there can still be innovation in that space, right? I mean, you can still fail within risk management. And I think that's where we've got this idea that, you know, that's not possible. I guess there's a there's a framework that you can build around failing that will actually help you 
to embrace risk and also do it in a way that kind of um, mitigates risk. I don't know if that makes sense, right? It embraces it, but it also mitigates it. So so one of the first things uh, in this article it mentions is the concept of failing fast. Using failure as sort of a call to action to improve or to learn from. Be willing to avoid complacency and take action and avoid perfectionism and analysis paralysis. Hmm. I think that's a good point. Uh, we can all fall into that, especially as data has become more accessible you spend all your time trying to determine, you know, A versus B, this versus that. Should I target here? Should I do this? What about spending the money here? You know, all the while you're, you're, you're burning daylight. And so this idea of failing fast is that A-B test. It's let's run stuff. Maybe it's using a little bit of dollars and forming, you know, and, and using that to, you know, improve and, and learn from. Well, and I'm also thinking not only A-B tests, right? It's like, have you ever sat down with physicians and talked about keyword strategies for your paid search? You could suddenly go down this rabbit hole of just like trying to find every word under the sun that can be used that people might be searching on and tie that into your advertising approach. And, you know, part of it is like, are you sure that this is this is the way we want to go? And that comes from like a fixed mindset. Oh, we have to get every word that people Google search for. I don't know if that's experimenting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, you, you can get caught with the you know 1800 keyword around some sort of heart rhythm disorder instead of just, you know, getting out there and figuring it out. And I think getting that feedback, you know, and I think fail fast. I think fail is kind of a weird word at this point because really it's just, you know, gaining feedback quickly to inform what it is that you're doing forward. That's right. And so that's why we set in, like, if we do an email campaign, we could kind of look at two days or even three days into it. You could see if it, how well it's performing. And you get feedback right away. And we hear these terms of like optimizing a paid search campaign in the first two weeks. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we kind of built into the digital space, what we do, that kind of helps us to learn from our quote unquote failures quicker and adjust for them. I guess that's where technology and, and data and all this stuff comes into play relative to, you know, what it is that, that everyone else does. Even machine learning and AI is designed to go through a lot of that data crunching to find out where those failures occur, potentially even before you do them. And, and so now more and more is relying heavily on actually artificial intelligence to fail for us so we don't have to ourselves. So uh, after fail fast, you got to fail often. Uh, so focusing on what you can control. You know, he, he gives an interesting, you know, story about Lon Kruger, uh, who's uh, head basketball coach. Actually, he's been a head basketball coach for a long time in college. Like most coaches, wants to win. But, you know, he, he teaches the athletes to pay less attention to the final score and more attention to their individual effort. This idea that if everybody does their job or everybody does what they're supposed to do, if they continue to get better at what they do, eventually that will be reflected in the – score of the game or the outcome of the hmm. game. You know, did you do your job? Did you die for all the loose balls? You know, did you, you know, win the rebounding battle? You know, all that, all that kind of stuff. It's something that you see coaches do a lot. In sports is probably one of those that's this most apt to show failure. I mean, it's very obvious uh, when people fail in sports. And again, going back to some of those things, one of the most famous Michael Jordan quotes, you know, everybody thinks of him as the greatest player of all time and all these kind of things. And he had a mm -hmm. quote a while back that said, 
you know, I missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I've missed. I failed over and over again in my life, and that's now why I succeed. You know, he's not shying away from, you know, what that looks like in the, his growth trajectory of, of what he does for a living. But I think sports is probably that, that one outlier, you know, relative to other careers, if you will, that that's a little easier to point to or everybody understands, I guess. But you know what this reminds me of, Reed, is agile development. You've heard of that, right? That term agile development. Oh, sure. Project development. And basically what it is, is you chunk up the work in small pieces of time, two-week sprints or whatever it might be, right? You do this activity or this work, and at two weeks, you got to be prepared to kind of look back at your work, see if it worked or not, and be able to fix it, and then be able to move on to the next piece of work and kind of breaking it all out. Instead of like the old school way of project management, which is you look at something and say, okay, in 18 months, we're going to be done with this. And then you all start moving towards that 18-month goal. It sounds like there's this iteration to learning how to do small things and fail from them and learn from them so that you can do the next sprint, so to speak, in a better way and be more positive in it. Absolutely. You know, the next one he goes to is avoid complacency. Again, I, I think this is that idea of not getting in a rut to some degree is maybe another way of saying that or not being okay with the status quo. You know, what worked previously may not work today. You got to look for ways to improve and iterate and, you know, innovate. And I think, again, that lines up nicely with what we do and the way technology evolves. We got to continue to be looking and sorting that out. And we saw that, of course, this fall at these conferences that we went to is that's exactly what's happening. You know, people that are presenting and people that are attending are both there learning and they're avoiding complacency. And we hear this a lot, like in the health systems. Like we say, look at the look at these people that you know change technology. Look how Uber disrupted the taxi business. Look at how Airbnb disrupted the hotel business. Look at how Amazon disrupted online shopping. Look at you mm-hmm. know, and they always point to these big or what is it? Uh, Netflix disrupted Blockbuster. And the whole point they say is, if you keep doing things the old way. You're never going to get into this new way of looking at things and a new way to be experimental or be innovative. And if anything, our industry, the healthcare industry, it's very much rooted in old school thinking. And so, you know, I, I think this makes a lot of sense for us to start to think about how to be more creative and avoid that complacency. And then the last point that they bring forward is this fact of failing forward. I like this one the best, I think, because it really is avoiding that victim mentality. When things don't work out the way you planned it, then change your approach and just move on and appreciate the feedback, learn from what you did, and then apply that for the future state. Don't get caught by the fact that your particular campaign failed. Just learn from that and move on and don't do it the same way next time. Yeah, I think this is where pride gets the best of us sometimes or... We feel like we know better uh, because, you know, what he's saying here is if, if that's the case, if that's your mindset, then it's going to be really hard to do anything different next time. And so being able to have an objective, you know, be able to step back and objectively look at the feedback and say, is there something to learn from this? Is any of this valid? Some of the criticism may not be. Some of it may be. Some of it may be inaccurate. Some of it may not be inaccurate. Uh, but to be able to you know decipher that, I think is a great skill. 
uh, and a great plus to your organization if you can take feedback and criticism and decipher what to do with that. And, and like they say, fail forward, you know, to improve next time. Because the worst thing you can do is just, you know, keep doing the same thing the same way. That's the definition of insanity, right? Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. With that, why don't we turn the tables now to this other article that I found, okay. which actually is called To Be Successful, Stop Learning from Failure. <laughs> so forget <laughs> everything we just said. Don't do that. Do, do exactly. this now. If you've made it this far into the episode, just forget everything previous. <laughs> and everybody else that had been listening, they'll now be doing it wrong. Exactly. The author of this article even goes on to say, and, and this is Elida Miranda Wolf. She speaks and talks a lot about leadership and productivity. She starts off by saying, is failure really a gift? That's a good question. After a failure, postmortem analysis and retrospectives may encourage introspection, optimization, and even new learnings. But all of those things may not have been necessary if instead you, one, didn't fail, and two, <laughs> you asked those who achieved success how they did it before you did it. Well, sure. No, that's fine if you want to go about it that way and just not fail to begin with. Um, well, I mean, so this is, this is where obviously we, you know, I mentioned evidence-based medicine before. This is why that exists. Because number one, they don't have the luxury of failing, right? A lot of times in outcome-based, you know, medicine type actions and, and procedures. And so they do evidence-based medicine. Hey, this is what works. Lots right. of people have done it. We're, we're pretty sure this is the best way to do it. And if you didn't fail in the first place, i.e. you figured out how other people had success. Well, sure, that makes a lot of sense. Even uh, the CEO of Pinterest, Ben Silverman, was quoted in this article to say, whenever you want to learn how to do something well, you start by studying people who are really good. You don't study all the failed sprinters to learn how, they, how to run fast. You study the person who runs fast. So that kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, that's a poor analogy, however. Of course, it is Pinterest, but still. <laughs> but that's a poor analogy because a lot of the obviously sprinting or running fast, there's, yes, there is technique and there is coaching and all those things, but you still have to have the gift to run fast. <laughs> right? So this, it's, not, it's not a great analogy. But yes, that's why people read leadership and business books historically. You know, they want to know how Jack Welch ran companies and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, good to great and all these you know, leadership books that you think of. 
You know, I'm also thinking about that podcast, How I Built This. They never interview people on that podcast who've never built something. They're always interviewing people that have been successful on how they built something successful. And really, the point why I love that podcast and why it's been recommended before is because it allows me, as a person who fancies himself a little bit entrepreneurial, to uh, learn how other people have done things and some of the lessons they learn, because I get a lot of value from that. But I'm not hearing it from someone that's always failed and never succeeded. True. I think the never succeeded part is the part you got to worry about. I mean, you still hear a lot from people that are like, I failed and then this was the home run. But those are easy stories to tell, I guess. I don't think that necessarily to, to, I guess, this article's point, we hear the stories about how this person failed and failed and failed and then is now a billionaire. But you don't you don't hear a lot of stories about the people that just failed and failed and failed. Although that's the vast majority that went along that track. So again, looking at that and going, oh, okay, well, I too can be a billionaire if I just keep on doing this thing is probably not a great litmus test or indication. Uh, and instead, back to their first point, looking at those who have achieved success and figuring out how they did it before you start may be a better use of time. If you're looking at kind of the A-B test world, well, yeah, sure, fail fast. If you're building a company, the idea of failing fast maybe maybe isn't quite as you know spot on. Well, they even have a stat, and you know how much we love stats in the show. So they have a stat here that says, already successful entrepreneurs were far more likely to succeed again. Their success rate for later venture-backed companies was around 34%. But entrepreneurs whose companies have been liquidated or gone bankrupt had almost the same follow-on success rate as the first-timers, 23%. Everybody's swinging for the fences. Everybody's afraid they're going to miss out on the next Uber uh, or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, right? Whatever they passed on last time that they're kicking themselves about. This article even mentions a study that was done by educational psychologists where researchers consolidated findings from uh, studies along with new research to demonstrate how problem-based learning ignores human cognitive architecture, leading to weaker results than direct instruction. What they found is that in environments, workplaces where experimenting was sort of the norm, minimal guidance led to minimal results. In other words... Figuring things out on your own doesn't usually work. And if it does, it takes a long time to learn. And what's the opportunity cost? This is why YouTube is so great. Because if you want to figure something out, you don't have to figure it out on your own. You can just look it up on YouTube and there's probably a video, right? So it's like the, you know, how do I change the filter on the thing, you know, or how do I do, you know, you just look it up and somebody, somebody else has already done it and they've already made a video about it. So you just look at it and go, oh, okay. So you pull the thing back and pull the thing down and then that deal slides out. You slide the new one in. You don't have to, you know, break the refrigerator trying to figure out how to change the, uh, you know, water filter thing that's in it or whatever. This guy named Matt Ridley. Uh, who who wrote The Rational Optimist, which sounds like a really interesting book that I have to read. Uh, he said, self-sufficiency is another word for poverty. <laughs> when we try to do everything ourselves instead of bringing others into the fold, especially those who are better at specific functions than and roles than we are, we end up with less time, 
and less success. Yeah, I mean, look at look at everybody that's run successful companies. You, you, all they all say is, you know, we hired really smart people and then let them do their job. That's how I like to look at it. Yeah, but but we get so prideful around this idea that we have to be the expert, right? Or we have to own this thing or know this thing or whatever, right? I don't know why we don't carry that into kind of our day-to-day, if you will. And that comes back to this whole concept of learning to learn from success. There is benefits in learning from failure, but there's a lot of benefits as well from learning from success. The a serial technology CEO, Steve Subar, said that there's no prize for learning the hard way. Not, there's nothing wrong with people learning from people with experience. And and so that's really the the thing here. If you if when it comes to success, find people that have done it in those areas that you're looking to improve, disrupt, or create, deconstruct their successes and find out what they did to be successful and then help them and learn from them, help them guide you through your success. Uh, Again, I I keep going back to, you know, I guess coming fresh off these conferences this fall, uh, you continue to see that, hey, there's people sitting up on these stages, on panels, whatever it may be. Uh, talking about a lot of times just a flat out case study and they're mm-hmm. sharing what worked, what didn't work. And that kind of thing. people in the audience are their competitors. They're, they're people that are like them, not like them, whatever. Um, but they're, you know, deconstructing that success and they're guiding people through that. I mean, this is what we're seeing. And so I think, you know, we're, we're at the right place at the right time uh, to, again, continue to not, you don't have to fail in a lot of these situations, I guess. When you look back at both of these, Reed, when you look at back at the first, the culture of failure, and then the culture of learning from success, do you think that these are polar opposites? Or do you think that these are working together? I, you know, I think they're working together. Because I think, you know, at, at a 30,000 foot view, you know, that's where a lot of this, you don't fail if you don't have to kind of stuff comes in. You know, so when you're thinking about building your department or at the strategy level of your organization, you know, that's where you don't want to fail if you don't have to. Then I think if you move to the tactical level, that's where the growth mindset comes in and, and the failing fast and often avoiding complacency, those types of things. Not all the time, but I think that's where the majority of it fits in my mind. You know, strategy don't fail if you don't have to tactical, you know, move quick. I love the way you just said that read. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that there is a lot we can learn from these two different vantage points uh, to make ourselves much better. And what's really interesting is Jess Colombo, who we're interviewing, you're going to hear from her in just a second, talks a little bit about what she did to learn from not only her failures, but also from her successes. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, You know, they've got a consumer experience platform that that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. 
Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website, but, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of our podcast. And today I have a pleasure of talking to someone that I just recently met, was introduced to, but I feel like we're going to be lifelong friends because we seem to be aligned. And that's Jess Colombo. Jess, thank you. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Yeah. So um, um, our audience may not know about you. Um, can you tell people a little bit about your background and your experience? Sure. Uh, much to my parents' chagrin, I was a poetry major two decades ago, um, and um, was lucky enough to, to come out of school and be recruited by an agency, a creative firm, um, and started doing PR uh, about 15, 20 years ago. And um, Facebook kind of came onto the scene uh, a few years into my PR career, and um, I, as the youngest kid at an agency, had the opportunity to say, hey, I think we should pay attention to this. So started doing consumer brand, um, social media, and digital marketing uh, at that point, and then went back to school and spent some time as a researcher and um, academic um, studying uh, health and wellness and the internet, so where the intersection was. I had a lot of personal experience, unfortunately, at the time in palliative care and hospice, so that was my research area. So I spent two years um, looking at how the internet and online community could improve quality of life for people at end of life. That led me, um, just a few years later, to Oregon Health and Science University, so one of the largest teaching hospitals in the country, and um, helped them kind of set up shop for their social media program. OHSU, I mean, that's a very well-renowned organization. So, And I think we're going to talk about a particular use case, or as you, you've called it to me, a fail case of some of the work that you did there. Why don't we set that up and, and tell us a little bit about what, we're, what, that, what happened there. Yeah, I call it a, a fail case in that, um, and I mean that in the most loving way. Yeah, I was just a couple years into my time uh, up on the hill at OHSU um, when we had a surprise gift from a relatively um, well-known person, Phil Knight, and his wife, Penny, um, who was very successful um, and supportive of the OHSU Knight Cancer Institute. And we were doing some pretty exciting things there. Uh, and Phil and Penny um, offered our institution $500 million in support if we, as an organization, could raise a matching amount, $500 million, in a two-year fundraising sprint. Um, it was something that had never been done by our organization. It was something that we didn't know was even possible. Uh, what Phil told us that if we raised 499, we wouldn't get the match. So everything was on the table, and it was um, a really exciting time, and one where we made a lot of great mistakes <laughs> and <laughs> learned a tremendous amount. And so I'm glad to pay that forward. And I, um, I certainly live out kind of what I learned um, and continue to be a student of this space um, mm -hmm. after that. Well, let's talk through, like, what exactly happened? I mean, sure. I'm intrigued now. What what yeah. happened? The idea of finding cures for cancer um, is hyperbolic unto itself for a lot of us in this space. We understand the complexity of that and the, the timeline around that. Yet, uh, as a teaching hospital in Portland, Oregon, we knew that we needed to make uh, put a, a pretty significant stake in the ground uh, from a messaging standpoint. Why us? 
uh, from all of the other really tremendous organizations and researchers looking to find more cures for cancer. Why would we be the one that you should bet on uh, from a fundraising standpoint and a patient support standpoint? Dr. Brian Drucker, head of the OHSU Knight Cancer Institute, was uh, in the 90s wildly successful and continues to be um, in uh, uh, personalized medicine. And he had developed um, a particular type of treatment that essentially, quote unquote, cured one type of cancer, chronic myeloid leukemia, took the survival rate, um, thanks to his team, from 40% to 90%, which was pretty unbelievable. Um, That was our proof point. Uh, Why us? Because we had done it once and we would do it again and again. And that was um, kind of the linchpin or the foundation of our storytelling out of this campaign, right? So the CML community inherently is the proof point. The folks who are still living today, who still have their babies and their wives and their mothers because of what Dr. Drucker and his team had done. What we didn't do, what I didn't do in my uh, very early years of social media strategy was listen and engage my patient community more significantly in advance of creating my messaging framework. So how so? I mean, I, I mean, uh, we talk about listening to our communities and learning from them. Like in what, what ways do you feel like you may, you may have missed the mark? I really appreciate it. I've, I've listened here at the Mayo to a number of experts talking about um, kind of the lexicon and the language use and um, cultural competency around language use. We came out with um, a tagline around the campaign that cancer doesn't need more awareness, it needs more cures. We've done it once and we'll do it again. Oh. The word cure, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, a lot of, of, of the you know, more robust content that we put out into the world. But we wanted to be bold. Uh, we wanted to start a conversation and, and kind of make ourselves more visible. But the word cure, hello, is so loaded. And the idea that taking a medication, a personalized medicine, that may cost thousands of dollars a month for you, that may not actually save your mom or your baby, because sometimes it doesn't, Mm -hmm. um, the idea that that the use of the word cure might jeopardize your insurance coverage in some sort, all of it was um, lacked empathy for the lived experience of the CML community. And we had full support uh, of those organizations in advance. And Dr. Drucker himself um, is very involved and, and, um, and very well known and, and, and engaged in the CML community. But the marketing copy that was hyperbolic, that had nothing to do with the caliber and the success of the science Mm-hmm. is what got us in hot water, and, um, and that's where I take responsibility. It's noble of you to take such full responsibility <laughs> well, for that. We've been, we, many of us who are in marketing, we've been in situations yeah. where we've had marketing copy that falls flat. Mm-hmm. I mean, so did this, like, get out of the boardroom, or was this something that actually went into market? Or You know, we thought a lot about, and as you do in kind of, um, it wasn't traditional crisis comps planning, but we certainly had an FAQ document thinking about all the things that people would have trouble with around our messaging or where we might get in trouble. And we thought a lot about our partners. Um, Some of the imagery we used was cutting of ribbons. And yet Susan G. Komen's and the other organizations in the cancer space are tremendous partners of OHSU. And so if we said cancer 
culture doesn't need more awareness and cut a ribbon, well, how would that make them feel, right? And so we thought a lot about how the boldness of this campaign would impact others, our friends and our, our, our community organizations and, and things of that nature. And we had vetted it from a qualitative kind of anecdotal standpoint with patients. And Dr. Drucker himself has conversations with his patients inside of an exam room where the word cure is used. Again, I think the, the, the difference is that the patient decides how that's right. used, not right. us. Right. Your audience really decides like how yeah. successful your your campaigns and your messages are, really. It was wildly presumptuous for me as a marketer <laughs> to use that word in terms of your lived experience, which obviously is uh, a harrowing and a challenging one. Right. So it, they checked me uh, within 24 hours of launching. Um, uh, the messaging did very well on billboards. It did very well in the Wall Street Journal. It did very well in a lot of places where people were excited and engaged with it. As soon as I put it on Facebook, um, it was a deluge. I think within 24 hours, um, the, the the hashtag take down one down, it was the one down campaign, was trending. Uh, we had HuffPost blog articles that were written. We had, uh, you know, funders and patient advocates and organizations who were coming out publicly saying they were against it. And at that point, that's when I got called into the to the principal, I mean the president's office. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so you said it did well in billboards and like Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. but yet on Facebook you had this backlash. Mm-hmm. Now in my mind, I went to the fact that, you know, Facebook may be actually a one of the the ways that people can actually have an immediate response. I don't know how you would respond to a billboard or even a Wall Street Journal article. Right. Right? Is that what you found? Yep. It was wildly um, intimate, immediate, personal. It is a privilege as a brand or an organization to be invited into someone's social media feed. Mm. I don't have a right to be in that space. Mm. And so the way that I approach you and engage with you, if it doesn't resonate very deeply with, again, your lived experience Mm -hmm. and the language use you use around your own personal health experience, then I believe it is also your right, the democratization of information and, Mm -hmm. you know, conversation on the internet. It is your right to check me and let me know that that didn't feel right and that Mm -hmm. didn't feel good. And that it's not my right to make um, uh, those. It was presumptuous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we made assumptions about um, what folks would like. And w- were there plenty of supporters on the internet? Absolutely. Right. Did really important CML patients mm-hmm. feel insulted? Um, and um, like their experience was invalidated? Mm-hmm. And so the conversation with executives within 24 hours right. was, what is this thing that's happening on social media? Do we need to shut the entire campaign down and rejigger our entire kind of messaging framework and approach? Okay, so this came from social media. Mm-hmm. How, did, how were they, the executives aware of this within 24 hours? Mm-hmm. Were they copying in on this? Uh, I was in real time screen grabbing and sending things as an oh. FYI to the okay. campaign team. I, I thought... Oh, I'm starting to see, and you know, we wanted to keep our finger on the pulse of how it was landing, essentially. Yeah. And I'm, I'm serious when I say it was one Facebook post on the cancer Facebook page. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so, okay, so now, now you're in the in the the room with the president. They're talking about we have to totally take down this campaign. I'm sure you invested a lot of monies Indeed. and efforts into this. Yeah. So what'd you do? Yeah. I, I'm now very good at crisis comms. If you ever. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, there are so many good, valuable things that came out of this, including the fact that people had to get in the room who didn't traditionally integrate in terms of communications, right? Yeah. So we had our patient experience people, we had our internal comms, we had our foundation people, we had our marketing, we had provider relations. So getting everybody around the table was really important to develop, kind of to have that war room and to have the FAQ and the language and the you know content and the copywriting in mm-hmm. real time. But the phases are, one, you say you're sorry and you say it really fast. Um, You don't necessarily have to take, and I say this in terms of just global crisis comms, I don't have to take responsibility necessarily, in this case I did, but I don't have to take responsibility holistically in crisis communications on social for what this person claims happened. I do have to take responsibility for the fact that they had a disappointing experience with my brand. That's always unacceptable and it's their prerogative to tell me so. Uh So I said, I'm sorry, and as humans, we want to be heard. So I say, I'm sorry, Sharon, I hear you and we're listening. And this wasn't our intention, obviously, but that doesn't really matter at this point. You matter and um, your support matters. Um, Again, the CML community was the central proof point to the entirety of of the why behind this campaign. If they weren't with us, it it was a non-starter. So um, we thought... What was really, really important was keeping Dr. Drucker and the science and the credibility of the work that his team was doing as as clean as possible from this hyperbole of marketing copywriting, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we knew that Dr. Drucker was a really significant person in the CML space and to these people individually. And we asked him to take an hour of his day that day and get on the phone with the five most pissed off people to say, hi, Sharon. Uh, I hope I'm not interrupting dinner tonight, but this is Dr. Brian Drucker, and um, and I'm sorry to hear about your son, and I'm sorry about how that felt when we put out this campaign. You are important to us, and we can't do this without you. Wow. It turned everything within 12 hours. Well, I could imagine that. I mean, yeah. how often do organizations... I mean, you heard a couple of years ago there was this fiasco with uh, Domino's Pizza and then the CEO came out with a YouTube video and everybody's like, oh, what a great crisis response and like we hear from the CEO. But I mean, to have the have Dr. Drucker reach out to five patients, former patients, yep. and and actually apologize? And it's a testament to him. Um, he's he's one of those unicorns where he's really brilliant from a you know scientific medical mind, but he's also just a wildly kind person. Mm-hmm. He um, was certainly moved by the feedback that we were getting. And um, so to have his buy-in and his participation in this kind of service recovery, it, it meant a lot to him, and it meant a lot to us to have him involved. But um, it would not have been the same thing, obviously. I mean, we can do all we can from the marketing channels and from our institutional accounts. Mm-hmm. It's a different story, and I don't mean this literally, but when the god of your particular kind of medical space or healthcare experience calls you on the phone and says, you're important to me, yeah. um, and I hear you, and I validate you, and I right. see you. So it it's a consistent reminder, too, that the way that we talk to each other on social can't, shouldn't be any different than the way I speak to you right now across right. this mic. Right. Um, and the, the moment that I start thinking that this is a billboard and that I can make assumptions and be presumptuous about an experience that you know far better than I is when I get in hot water every time. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I just adore this line of work because of when I get checked. 
I can t- 15, 20 years into doing social media professionally, and if you're not a student, that's when you get in trouble, mm. right? Mm. So what a gift to have people teach me again and again when I, it, it was lazy and it was presumptuous. Well, you know, it's almost antithetical to how some of uh, some hospital marketers and communicators feel. They don't want to show like the warts or share their, their, you know, their failures, so to speak. Yet I think that there's a lot of enrichment and learning, like you said, in that experience, right? Heck yes. Can we just let our guards down? I, I'm, I would never lie and say that my executives and my team weren't nervous when I said, I'd like to share this experience out in the world because I think it will make us all better. <laughs> that, of course, we've got anxiety at an executive level and at different areas of the institution where they say, I, you know, we don't really want to give more airtime to what just happened. You know, we worked our butts off to kind of regain the trust and the loyalty and the relationships that were really important to begin with. And, you know, 18 months in, we raised $500 million. And now wow. there's a billion dollars in Oregon that researchers are using to find more cures for more cancers instead of applying for grant money. That's what's important. That's amazing. But I am committed to to openly sharing my mistakes. I think the humility is attractive, to be totally honest. I think that's what builds relationship with others. And we'd all be lying if we didn't have the, right, the commiseration here at the Mayo and in other contexts where we get to get together as healthcare professionals and say, man, this stuff is hard sometimes and we goof up and let's get better. That's where relationship and the good stuff happens. Right, absolutely. I think it it makes us stronger and it it helps us learn and sometimes those may be not the ideal ways we want to learn, but they're the ways that you do learn, right? I mean, we've all make mistakes. So since then, you've moved on. Now you're running your own business. Yeah. And so what are some of the things that you learned from this that are still with you today? Because you're still talking about this years later. Yeah, and singing the praises of OHSU. It was just yeah. a, um, a really wonderful experience. And I, I learned a tremendous amount and continue to be um, big supporters of those guys. So now I, I run a practice where we do social media training and digital marketing uh, training for healthcare and higher ed folks, where there's a lot of kind of anxiety, obviously, um, around um, adoption and uh, different folks talking about you in that space. And how do we say the things we want to say without getting sued? And um, going through kind of a, a harrowing crisis experience, I do a whole lot of crisis crisis training. So um, more listening and monitoring, more FAQ development. Let's um, get ahead of things. And um, I end up being that very annoying gal in the room who raises her hand with every kind of campaign and says, what are the 10 things people might be pissed off about here? Let's just be ready. I hope nobody is upset by any of the things because this is a wonderful campaign. But let's just think of how this could be um, taken out of context or even in context. What are the things that I don't know I don't know here? Um, Which just makes me a better practitioner. So the one thing that I, I think about a lot and um, whether or not it, it helps folks sleep at night is this goofy line around, and someone far smarter than I said it, but I can't turn apathy into advocacy. So if you love me, I can work with that. If you hate me, I can work with that too. Um, And so the idea of crisis being a really rich space to actually deepen and extend brand loyalty and institutional even patient volume, we can turn that because if you didn't care enough to engage and tell me what you thought and be really upset with me publicly, I wouldn't even have the opportunity to convert that into some sort of advocacy. Wow, that's 
that's pretty cool to think about. It's a little profound. Yeah, to think that you either have to really excite them or really get them to be annoyed with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't want to try to do the latter, but it happens. But it helps. It does. Uh, that, yes. This is awesome, Jess. So um, so you mentioned that you work for a company. Now, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that. What do you do now? Yeah, I run a, a practice called MedEd Digital, and we offer social media training services and strategy and a whole lot of lead generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to get butts in seats. We want lots of great providers in rural communities. We want more um, patients who have access to services. Um, And then a lot of thought leadership training and uh, helping executives and other leaders um, engage in that space and engage their employees. So I I write a lot of policies and then we talk about socializing. So they say, how do I get my employees to talk about us online really positively? I say, maybe check your um, parental leave policy because it starts with culture. (laughs) So we have a lot of hard conversations and then we do a lot of good work. That's awesome. Yeah. So your website is mededdigital.com. .com, right. And I've been out there and you have some good resources out there for people. Cool. We'll link to it in the show notes. Awesome. I'm also going to link to your uh, to your Twitter feed because you actually tweet out some pretty interesting things too. Cool. Yes, yeah. please add some small print to say, you know, excuse the language or the goofball <laughs> memes, but I you know, I keep it interesting, I think. Uh, I think that we all have to keep it interesting, yes. right? So that's cool. Well, thank you so much for your time today. You've really shared some really great information. Thank you so much for having me. I Love it. Okay, wrapping up a really good episode today, Reed, on something that's a little bit different than some of the topics we talked about before. This is a little bit more theoretical, right? A little bit more strategic in nature, but I think it's one that a lot of our audience can relate to. Absolutely. This is this is something daily. Doesn't matter what you're doing, what the topic is what the strategy department, what your role is. Yeah, this this applies to everybody. I hope we have a lot more uh, episodes that are, are focused on things like this because I think sometimes it's good to get into something that, face, that we face every day, but it's also a little less about a technology or a tool or something like that. It's about a strategy. So, well, we're at the end of our conference season, Reed, so we don't really have a lot to talk about about where we're going to be in the future, do we? No, we've got a few things coming up after the first of the year. I, you know, I'll have a um, couple of conferences on the horizon, if you will. Uh, and then South by Southwest over in March, I, I recently finished uh, my judging duties for the Innovation Awards. And so I'll just say there's a lot of really cool things happening out there. So you can check that out at uh, over on their website, sxsw.com. Uh, if you'd like to register, uh, ticket prices go up the closer you get to the event. So it'd be worth, uh, if that's something you're, you're interested in, that and hotels fill up. So I would, uh, I'd recommend you, you checking it out. Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Well, Reed, um, we're going to turn ourselves over to uh, the recommendations part of our podcast now, I guess. Did you want to go first or should I go first? Um, yeah, I'll go first. My, mine is actually a podcast. I'm going to recommend another podcast uh, that actually syncs up quite nicely with uh, with today's uh, episode. And it's uh, uh, Gimlet Media puts out a lot of great shows that, that I've enjoyed through the years. Uh, there's one on the internet called Reply All. Heavyweight is a lot of fun to listen to. Anyway, they've got some really good stuff. But one of their newest ones is called Without Fail. Hmm. And it's uh, billed as candid conversations with people who have done hard things, what worked and what didn't and why. So the most, you know, there's only a couple of episodes. This is a brand new show. One of the really cool, uh, like the most recent one, for example, 
uh, is with a guy named Ron Johnson. So it's hosted by Alex Bloomberg, who founded Gimlet. And it's just him having a conversation with somebody and talking about their successes and failures and, and really more their failures and kind of what came of that. And uh, the most recent one's with Ron Johnson, and he's the guy that Steve Jobs hired to create the Apple retail store. He he went in you know, his 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 career uh, spanned Target. He came from Target, where he had just done some really cool stuff, to create the Apple Store. And uh, then his failure was leaving Apple to go be the CEO of J.C. Penney's. And so um, I won't. I won't spoil it all. He's got some really, really interesting stuff in, in that episode. Uh, but anyway, they're cool. It's cool. So there's several several episodes out there uh, you can download and listen to uh, without fail. I had just subscribed to it as you were talking about it. Sounds really interesting. And it does relate nicely to our topic today of the show. So mine is a little bit different. Uh, it may not directly relate to uh, to our topic. Uh, I'm going to recommend a video game that I've been getting into lately. I'm a console player, and I picked myself up a copy of Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, you heard about this game, Reed? Uh, I've heard of it. have not played it. You are a, in the Wild West. You play an outlaw uh, that you know starts off. You're in the snowy mountains, and you're got to find a camp to save the people that you're with. And then you basically eke your way out through the Wild West to become a, a, a notable outlaw. And there's a this game is just beautiful. It's gorgeous. I am surprised what they could do with uh, mm-hmm. not only the background scenery. It's like you're playing in a Wild West movie open gameplay. It's a lot of fun. There's nothing more satisfying than getting on your horse and riding your horse. And it's interesting because you have to use your controller to ride the horse the right way or it'll get upset with you and it depletes its energy. It's it's hilarious. It's so much fun taking on a bounty to go track down someone, roping them with your lasso and, and hog tying them and throwing them on the back of your horse and taking them back to the county <laughs> jail. That's a lot of fun. I'm telling you. I have a good time doing that. We do that here in person, uh, here in Texas. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, get this. Uh, you start off in a, in a, a, a stretch of the, or a county, I guess it's called New Austin. Oh, so, boy. There you go. I guess the way it ties back to the show is um, I'm not very good at it. As I was saying to my wife the other day when I was playing it, I probably wouldn't last very long in the Wild West because I've died quite frequently in this game. <laughs> but that's okay. It's just a game, you know. Whatever. It's fun. Yeah. You know? so. Fell often. <laughs> Fell frequently. So <laughs> exactly. Go. As long as you can reboot your life, I that's guess, right. right? That's right. So. As long as you can get reset. So there you go. Well, very cool. A couple of good options. Uh, again, touchpoint.health is the website. Appreciate all the support. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. We that, that still is the number one way that people can find the show, and it helps people find the show. And so uh, thank you for listening. Love the feedback, and uh, excited to uh, make it towards the end and towards episode 100. So stay tuned. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.